Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In today's episode, Father Streitenberger covers paragraphs 624 to 682, What is the Resurrection? Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy! These sections are highly, and if you look at all of the references, it goes through a lot of the Pauline letters. And Paul is the great kind of theologian to explain for us what Christ's death has done for us and why it was so necessary for us. And Paul has all of these, you know, different explanations all of them combined explain the significance of the passion. And so in fidelity to St. Paul and to the tradition, the catechism doesn't just set, okay, here's one explanation, here's another explanation, here's a third explanation, here's a fourth, but intermingles them. Because the danger so often is, is that we can say, well, I really like this explanation and this is going to be the explanation that I'm going to use. Um, But that one explanation doesn't give us the whole picture. We need all of the different explanations. And so, like I said, this idea of the fact that sin, the punishment for sin is death, and so therefore the Father sends the Son because someone's got to die for this. Someone's got to shed blood and be punished for this. Well, that is true, but the way that we explain it, especially with a certain rhetoric and force, can make it seem as if the Father is just bloodthirsty. Um, you know, like he's, he's some sort of character from a Willie Nelson song or something like that that just wants to hang him high. You know? So um, we have to, I think we have to be careful um, in these explanations. And the Catechism does a very beautiful balanced, sound way of doing it by kind of interconnecting all of these themes and explanations for the death of Christ into these paragraphs. 603, um, Jesus did not experience reprobation as if he himself had sinned. So it's not as if Christ sinned and therefore he is suffering because he sinned. But in the redeeming love that always united him to the Father, he assumed us in the state of our waywardness of sin. So Christ, in a sense, became sin. He took on our sin, not because of any guilt or not because the Father wants wants him to suffer, because someone's got to suffer, but he does it to express the love of the Father for us. And this is the balance of explanations that Paul has and that the Catechism gives us. Yes, sin requires death. But taking on that death is a revelation of divine love, not of of divine mania. So Christ experiences death and the suffering in order to reveal the love of the Father. It really is an expression of the love of the Father.
God takes the initiative of universal redeeming love. By giving up his own son for our sins, God manifests that his plan for us is one of benevolent love prior to any merit on our part. And so he sends the son to initiate this love as well, and that the son's death is, is, is a gift of initiating this love. He affirms, Christ affirms, that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. This last term is not restrictive, but contrasts the whole humanity with the unique person of the Redeemer who hands himself over to save us. So Christ says, especially we hear this in the last, in the, at Mass, in the words of institution, that he has offered his himself for the many, for the many. Which means that he is, of course, the redeemer of the whole, human, of whole humanity. So we shouldn't see that in a restrictive sense that somehow Christ did not die for all. He did, in fact, die for all. He died for all men without exception, the catechism emphasizes. There is not, never has been, and never will be a single human person for whom Christ did not suffer. Paragraph 605, a beautiful little quote from the Council of Quercy in 853 AD. There is not, never has been, and never will be a single human being for whom Christ did not suffer. Um, The Catechism is helping us to kind of see um, the unique work of Christ in his passion, that his passion is for each and every one of us and each and every one of our sins. We then move into a next section. So the first section kind of deals with how the redemption, how the death of Christ works into God's plan and why we need it because of that plan. The catechism then moves to how the death of Christ um, is an offering of himself to the Father on our behalf. So the first section, what we've just covered, is the real need for the death according to God's plan. So since we have fallen, there is a need for, um, for someone to take the hit for our sins Christ does this by his death, but it is an expression of the love of the Father, that the Father kind of provides, um, provides justice for us through the death of his Son. Christ off- so Christ's whole life is an offering to the Father. From the moment of his incarnation, the Son embraces the Father's plan of divine salvation in his redemptive mission. We've seen that when we went through the different mysteries of Christ's life, how he kind of had the the cross in his, um, um, before him always, that this was sort of the focus of his life, the the trajectory to which he was going. Um, And that's why we can say that in some ways the cross is the whole summary. His death on the cross is the whole summary Um, of his life, of the incarnation, of the hidden years, of the public ministry, 
It all points towards the cross. His desire to embrace the Father's will, this obedience, um, is a sign for us. Um, It is a sign, really, um, not only of his mission, it reveals his mission of who he is, that he is the Son of the Father, he's about his Father's will. But ultimately, it is by that obedience, if you remember the, um, all of the mysteries of Christ's life, the three R's, which we're going to hit again and again, the th- every event, every mystery of Christ's life is redemptive. It's somehow uniting us, redeeming us to the Father. Second, it's revelatory. It somehow reveals something about the Father's love. And then third, it's recapitulatory. It recapitulates. It restores, it undoes something that was done. So Christ's obedience to the Father undoes the disobedience of Adam and Eve and the disobedience of each one of our sins. The next section, again, Christ's offering of himself as the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So he's an offering to the Father, his, his whole life really, but his death on the cross is an offering to the Father. And it's also an offering on behalf of our sin. So if in the last section the focus is on there's justice that needs to be done, sin has happened, death is the punishment, Christ does that and it reveals the Father's love, In this section, it is a sacrifice is to be offered to the Father. And Christ is that sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, who takes away our sins, whose whose offering is for on behalf of our sins. In this section, we see that Christ is the fulfillment of what Isaiah talks about, the suffering servant, who suffers silently, for the many, for the multitudes. He is the Paschal Lamb, the fulfillment of really all the sacrifices of Judaism. In the next paragraph, 609, we might say that if this is sort of a third, if we want to really parse out, but again, I'm hesitant to do it because the Catechism doesn't do it explicitly, but if there's a third explanation that the Catechism gives us for the death of Christ, it's that it reveals how he embraced the Father's redeeming love. The cross is the revelation of the Father's redeeming love. So first, the cross pays the debt, the, the debt due, the justice required of sin, while also revealing the love of the Father in doing so. Second, the cross is... Um, how Christ is this sacrifice to the Father on behalf of our sin, much like all the sacrifices in Judaism, the fulfillment of all those sacrifices. And then third, Christ's death on the cross really reveals the Father's redeeming love. That the Father has this love for all human beings, that Christ reveals this by loving us to the end, loving each of us to the very end. In suffering and death, his humanity became the free and perfect instrument of his divine love, 
which desires the salvation of men. Hence, the sovereign freedom of God's Son as he went out to death. So in the last, um, the last line there is that the fact that Christ freely embraces the will of the Father is just another sign of this infinite love of the Father. And then again, this goes back to um, what we ended our paragraph or our section on, the, um, on Christ himself, Jesus Christ himself, who is Jesus Christ. It ended with this reflection on the sacred heart of Jesus. Um, and we should add that really this, this explanation for the cross is expressed in the devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. That the human heart of Christ is pierced for on our behalf, freely allowed to be pierced, you know, Christ allows it to be pierced, in order to reveal to us the divine love. The catechism then moves from the reasons why the passion and death happen or are necessary to the particular mysteries that are under the umbrella, we might say, of the passion and death. So first we hear about the Last Supper, which is an anticipation of this free offering. Um, Jesus gave the supreme expression of his free offering of himself at the meal shared with the apostles. So the Last Supper is an expression of what he will do the next day on the cross, of his complete gift of himself. On the eve of the Passion, while still free, Jesus transformed this Last Supper with the apostles into the memorial of his voluntary offering to the Father for the salvation of men. So the Last Supper is the first Mass. Not that every Mass is a a representation or a recreation of the Last Supper, but that every Mass is a memorial, a making present of the passion of the sacrifice of Christ for the salvation of men. So at the Last Supper, mysteriously, because of the unity of the Paschal Mysteries, the death of Christ is somehow mysteriously, this complete sacrifice of his death on the cross, is somehow mysteriously present at the Last Supper. Now you might say, well, how is this possible? Well, he's a divine person. This is what makes this possible. This is why we call the events of his life a mystery. Mysteries. And of course, in the next paragraph, we're reminded that this is the institution. The Last Supper is the institution of the Eucharist and the institution of the priesthood. in a sense, the, the ordination of the apostles as priests. Then we have the agony of the cross next, which reveals, as we hear in that last paragraph, by accepting in his human will 
that the Father's will be done, he accepts his death as redemptive for himself, bore our sins and his body on the tree. Um, So Christ is suffering. He is sharing in the suffering um, of of all human beings through his passion, through his suffering. And he is, he is um, offering that suffering for each and every one of us on behalf of each and every one of our sins. And then, so then we hear that Christ's death is the unique and definitive sacrifice. It is unique and definitive in a couple different ways. First of all, it kind of summarizes all sacrifices. So first, there are what we would call the, um, the paschal sacrifices that accomplish the definitive redemption of men through the Lamb of God. And then it also is the sacrifice of the new covenant, which restores us to communion with God. So on the one hand, it accomplishes Christ's death on the cross as a sacrifice which accomplishes our redemption. It pays the debt of sin. And then on the second, the second way, it is something which unites us. It's sort of a covenantal sacrifice. So you offer the sacrifice in order to restore the relationship or establish the relationship. And so the sacrifice of Christ, for, we form, by that we form a covenant with the Father. So it has both a therapeutic and a relational um, aspect. It heals, it pays the price, and then it builds something new. It creates a new relationship. It's also unique in two other ways. First of all, it completes and surpasses all sacrifices um, because it is a gift from the, from the Father himself. It is a gift from the Father himself for the Father handed the Son over to, the sin, to sinners in order to reconcile us with himself. So this is a definitive sacrifice because it ultimately finds its origins in the Father. And then second, it is unique and kind of definitive, we would say, because it is the offering of the Son of God made man, who in freedom and love offered his life to the Father through the Holy Spirit in reparation for our disobedience. So, the sacrifice of the cross is definitive and unique because it's ultimately the Father giving the Son to be sacrificed. Of course, we see that image in the story of Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham is going to sacrifice his son Isaac, but instead the Lord provides the ram. But of course, the Lord had already provided Isaac, as the sacrifice. Well, in this one, this definitive sacrifice on our behalf, the Father 
is giving us the Son without really any sort of um, aid of our own. You know, He sends the Son. On the other hand, this sacrifice is unique and definitive because this divine person is human. And is offering with this divine and human freedom and love this great sacrifice in union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So never before and never since has um, a person been so united in the Trinity. Now, of course, we have that possibility because of the sacrifice. Paragraph 615 um, talks about substitution. We can see this in the sense of recapitulation, which is um, one of those three R's. seems like a drum I keep beating. Um, But it's, it's a good way to kind of understand this. So Christ substitutes his obedience for our disobedience. He makes himself an offering for our sin. By his obedience unto death, Jesus accomplished the substitution of the suffering servant who makes himself an offering for sin when he bore the sin of many and who shall, who, and who shall make many to be accounted righteous. Jesus atoned for our faults and made satisfaction for our sins to the Father. So again, a nice explanation of the, of the power of Christ's death and what it accomplishes. And in it, if we had more time, we could parse how all of these, um, these explanations for the death of Christ are present in this one. Jesus consummates his sacrifice on the cross um, a couple points, I think, that need to be made from that paragraph. It's a very important paragraph. In fact, I would say, um, out of all of the paragraphs in this section on the Passion, this is probably the most important. Paragraph 616. So, Christ, first of all, he can... Um, It is love to the end that confers on Christ's sacrifice the value as redemption and reparation, as atonement and satisfaction. So we hear these Catholic-ese words, redemption and reparation, atonement and satisfaction. Redemption so he redeems us from having been lost. Reparation, he repairs the damage that has been done. Atonement is not only does he offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin, but he restores us to union with the Father. At one mint is um, one way to understand that term. And then finally, satisfaction. He satisfies the needs of justice, which, of course, sin, um, the punishment of sin is death. But I think what's really powerful in that, so in that, so the catechism hits all those four terms. 
which are kind of necessary models for explaining what Christ's death has done. Redemption, reparation, atonement, and satisfaction. And then we have this sentence, He knew and loved us all when he offered his life. And so, redemption, reparation, atonement, and satisfaction, all ways of explaining what Christ has done for us by his death. But all of those explanations have to end with this understanding that ultimately the redemptive, um, reparative, atoning, and satisfactory value of Christ's death is an expression of his love for each of us, that he offers this for each of us. So this is the powerful insight that the Catechism says. Let me make it just kind of explicit, is that Christ died for each and every one of us, with each and every one of us in mind, and for each and every sin that we have committed in mind. This is the power of his of his death and of his love. That while he was on the cross, while he endured all those sufferings, he had each one of us and each and every one of our sins in mind as he did it. Um, This is the power of his death. Now, in case you think, well, you know, this is just, this is Father Adam's pious reading of the catechism. This is, this is, this is, it's too much. Let us, let us proceed, you know, because the catechism will vindicate me. Now, the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. No man, not even the holiest, was ever able to take on himself the sins of all men and offer himself as a sacrifice of all. So, there it is true. You know, we give out... Um, Medal of Honors for this all the time. It is true that there are men and women who die on behalf of other men and women. This happens. But no man, not even the holiest, not even the bravest, not even the most courageous, was ever able to take on himself the sins of all men and offer himself as a sacrifice for all. So no one is able to take on the punishment, the full punishment of each man and all men, or each person and all persons, and offer himself as a sacrifice for that. So, how is this possible? We make this claim that Jesus does this. The Catechism proceeds... The existence in Christ of the divine person of the Son, who at once surpasses and embraces all human person, persons and constitutes himself as the head of all mankind, makes possible his redemptive sacrifice for all. So first of all, Jesus is, the divine pers- is a divine person. A divine person can have in his mind simultaneously every human being that's ever existed and each and every sin that they've ever committed. But lest, this is too hard for us to explain or understand or comprehend, 
The Catechism also says that he is, as being the true man, the head of all mankind. The head of all mankind. He is the new Adam. So just as Adam, if you remember from the original, from the original sin section, just as Adam and Eve, the first human beings, because they were the first human beings, acted in a definitive way, that kind of invented or made all other humans share in this human nature because of a certain headship they had as the first humans. Christ, as the first and only divine person united to a human nature, acts definitively for this new humanity as a head of all mankind, And so even if you don't like this idea that he has, although I think it's a wonderful idea and and people should, should love it, that Jesus has in mind each and every one of us and each and every one of our sins when he dies for us, we can say in a general sense that because he is the head of the whole human race, he's able to do something that affects the whole human race. So by his death, It was a redemptive sacrifice for all. Honestly, um, 616 is the best explanation. If you also add, well, 616 is the best explanation. It is the definitive summary, I think, of this section of the Catechism. It's certainly the one that I have the most writings all over in my version of the Catechism, so... Then we're reminded um, in 618 to kind of conclude this section on the passion and death of Christ um, that um, we participate in Christ's sacrifice. It is true that the cross is a unique sacrifice and that Christ is the one mediator between God and man. But because in his incarnate divine person, He has in some way united himself to every person. The possibility of being made partners in a way known to God in the Paschal mystery is offered to all men. So because he is a divine person, we are able to be united to him. And so it's not just that Jesus has in mind every single human being that's ever lived and each and every one of their sins. But in some sense, each and every one of our actions, because our actions can be united to him. You might say that, well, he's got to be on top of a very tall mountain to see all of this. Or he can be, as a divine person, present in our lives at all moments. Anyway, he he calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. In fact, Jesus desires to associate with his redeeming sacrifice those who were to be its first beneficiaries. That is achieved supremely in the case of his mother, who was associated more intimately than any other person in the mystery of his redemptive suffering. So we're all able to participate in this sacrifice of Christ through our redemptive suffering, through our sufferings. Our sufferings 
So not only did Christ have each and every one of us in mind and each and every one of our sins, but each and every one of our sufferings are a part of his suffering. And so now it has the infinite value and weight of Christ's sacrifice behind it. So when I stub my toe and offer it up, it has the infinite power of the cross behind it because it's united to that suffering, to that sacrifice. Now we're going to talk about Mary later, but this is an important paragraph because it says definitively that Mary, in a most unique way, shares, associate, you know, shares in the redemptive suffering with her son. Supremely in the case of his mother, who was associated more intimately than any other person in the mystery of his redemptive suffering. Okay, so then Jesus was buried. We proceed. Um, A couple points that we want to make. The divine person of the Son of God necessarily continued to possess his human soul and body separated from each other by death. So there's a theme that I keep hitting upon, which the catechism keeps hitting upon, which is Jesus is a divine person. Jesus is a divine person. Jesus is a divine person. These things are possible because Jesus is a divine person. So at the death is explained, as we probably might recall from the section on um, original sin and evil and, and how death enters into the world. Death is the separation of the body from the soul. Christ experiences death. He dies. His body and his soul are separated. His human body and his human soul. But as a divine person, he is present to both of those. That doesn't mean he's split, but his human nature is definitely split. Body and soul are split. That's what death is. That's why death is so bad. You know, it's not just like a rock band has broken up, you know. This is, this is very meaningful when our body and our souls are separated. And so Christ is present, the divine person is present to both of them. Um, but in, in some sense, you know, of course, um, it was a real death, we hear in 627, in that it put an end to his earthly human existence. But because of the union which the person of the Son retained with his body, this was not a mortal corpse like others. For it was not possible for death to to hold on to him. He does experience death in the sense of separation of body and soul. He does not experience the effect of the fall of decay. Usually, the tradition would say that it's not until the fourth day that decay begins to set in, which is why he rises on the third day, as a testimony that, that um, he knew no decay. 
In some ways, as with every mystery of Christ's life, and that's why we, you know, these things are mysteries of Christ's life, we're able to share in them. We live in these mysteries, all of these mysteries. We just heard that with the cross. Redemptive suffering is how we live the mystery, share in the mystery, are present in the mystery of Christ's death and his passion and death. We also live the mystery of Christ's burial, especially in baptism, where we are buried with Christ. It is crucial that, and, and when we, in, I don't know, in months from now, cover the sacraments, we're reminded that it is in the liturgy that the mysteries of Christ's life are made present to us. They are, they are mysteriously here. All of the mysteries of Christ's life are united to the Paschal mysteries. We know the Mass, at the Mass, the Paschal, we are drawn to the Paschal mysteries. We are made present at the cross as, as Christ dies for us. Um, in all of the sacraments, we are also somehow made present at the mysteries of Christ's life. And as I said, although all of the mysteries are somehow present at all of the sacraments, um, we can associate certain sacraments or certain parts of the Mass, maybe, with certain mysteries, or certain seasons of the year with certain mysteries. So baptism is a good way to reflect that we are made present as Christ is buried into the ground. Buried. We're told he descended into hell. We profess this truth. Um, This idea of hell is um, the first meaning given in the apostolic preaching to Christ's descent into hell is that Jesus, like all men, experienced death and in his soul joined the others in the realm of the dead. But he descended there as Savior, proclaiming the good news to the spirits imprisoned there. Now, Scripture uses the abode of the dead in different ways. Um, Sometimes, of course, we use the word hell to refer to this abode of the dead, Sheol in Hebrew or Hades in Greek, because those who are there are deprived of the vision of God. Sometimes, as we hear later, um, it is referred to as Abraham's bosom. So this is the general dwelling place for the dead that Christ descends to. That's this understanding of the English word hell. From the Hebrew Sheol, Greek Hades, and this expression, bosom of Abraham. It is precisely these holy souls who awaited their Savior in Abraham's bosom whom Christ the Lord delivered when he descended into hell. So when he goes down, he goes to this dwelling place of the dead in general. 
not to the hell of damnation. And that's the point that the Catechism really wants to emphasize. Christ does not descend to the hell of the, of the damned. And he does not rescue them there. Now, does he look over the fence and say something to them? We don't know for sure. The Catechism is not very specific on that. What it does is that Christ as Savior goes to the realm of the dead, proclaims the good news, the gospel to them, and rescues them. So why is there this bosom of Abraham, this, this, realm, this place of the dead, this abode of the dead? Well, heaven is not yet, of course, opened until the resurrection. So they're waiting there for the Lord. So he goes there to bring them up. But again, those there are some in the hell of, dam, of the damned, and they remain there. Christ does not free them or liberate them. The eternal, and when we cover hell and heaven, the last things in the very last class, um, we, we'll talk about that more. But. Then we go to the resurrection. Now, the catechism emphasizes that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is both a historical event and a transcendent event. It is a, an event that happens within history, and then in some sense it is this event that transcends history. So how is it a historical event? Well, first of all, there is an empty tomb. An empty tomb. Which, although it's not a direct proof of the resurrection, it certainly points to the fact that something has happened. But second, it's a historical event because there are all these witnesses who, to whom the risen Christ appeared. Mary Magdalene, the women, um, Peter, the twelve. That during um, those, those times, Christ appears to them. Um, and he appears in such a way that's outside of the physical order. He transcends time. He's able to pass through walls. Um, it's also clear from the Gospels, from the testimonies, that the people were not, the followers of Christ, were not, um, in a sense, um, expecting this. I mean, Christ had, had told them about the resurrection. But this was something that they really did not create or conceive um, for themselves. Um, even more, um, the Gospels, the testimony, far from showing us a community seized by a mystical exaltation, the Gospels present us with the disciples demoralized. You know, so they had pretty much given up. I mean, I think they had, you know, after the death of Christ, they were like, well, well, this is nice, you know, let's go back home. I mean, we see that. They want to go back fishing. Or, you know, the two that are leaving um, on the road to Emmaus or to Emmaus, however you want to pronounce it, you know, they're going. You know, they're, you know, they're defeated. Um, they're not in some sort of 
enthusiastic, you know, blindness that they can invent or project this resurrection. Therefore, in 644, the hypothesis that the resurrection was produced by the apostles' faith or credulity will not hold up. On the contrary, their faith in the resurrection was born under the action of divine grace from their direct experience of the reality of the risen Christ. So those paragraphs um, 643 and 644, I think, give a good apologetic explanation for the resurrection, which many people, you know, question and reasonably, I think, do question. The third point of why we call the resurrection a historic event is the, the, real, the condition of Christ's risen humanity. Christ invites those who see him um, to recognize that he is not a ghost and above all to verify that the risen body in which he appears to them is the same body that was tortured and died. So, you know, the marks are still there. So he's not a ghost, he's really physically tangible, and this is the same body he had. However, he also reveals that there are new properties. It is a glorious body, not limited by space or time, um, and able to be present how and and when he wills it. So therefore, Christ's resurrection was not a return to an earthly life like those people that he raised from the dead in his public ministries, but that it's something different, essentially different, the catechism says. He possesses now, um, from the state of death, a new life beyond time and space. But then the Catechism says that the resurrection is a transcendent event. In the end of the day, no one was standing in the tomb when this happened. There were people outside. There were people who witnessed him and saw him. But no one actually saw the event of the resurrection. There's signs and evidence of it that people saw, but not the actual event. We might say, well, why wasn't it? Why wasn't there someone just standing there to see this? Well, because it is, in some sense, an eternal mystery, a divine, a divine event. It transcends history. This is at the heart of the mystery. The resurrection is a work of the whole trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Catechism does this nicely in three paragraphs, but we should keep in mind that it is the Father's power which raised up Christ, at least, you know, his humanity, we would say, and and perfecting his humanity. But, of course, Christ is this divine person, the Son of God, who in, in the power, according to the spirit of holiness, rises from the dead. And, of course, the spirit also is part and parcel to this. So as a, as a truly divine event, as the work of our redemption, it is the work of all three persons. The 
There are, um, the catechism points, six significant points for the meaning of, of the resurrection. First of all, the resurrection, and we might say that this is, why does the resurrection have to happen? First of all, the resurrection confirms all of Christ's works and teachings. First of all, he talks about it quite a bit, sometimes overtly, sometimes not so overtly. But he's talking about it. So this confirms what he's saying and what he does. Second, it fulfills the promises of the Old Testament and of those promises that Christ makes in his own life. Third, it reveals the truth of Christ's divinity. It confirms the truth of Christ's divinity. Fourth, just as the death liberates us from sin, the resurrection opens us to new life. We go down, we go up. We're freed, we're given a new life. And in that, it brings filial adoption to us. We're adopted as sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. Then finally, the resurrection and the risen Christ himself is the principle and source of our own resurrection. We're able to rise from the dead because Christ has risen. Briefly, the ascension, a couple points on the ascension. One is Christ's body was glorified at the moment of his resurrection, as proved by the new and supernatural properties he had, as we've mentioned earlier. Um, But during the 40 days, the fullness of that glory is somehow veiled. We see that something new has happened, that this isn't regular Jesus that's been healed but still has scars. This is, he is risen, he is glorified, but it's still kind of veiled. There's a certain veiling that happens. Jesus' final apparition ends with his irreversible entry of his humanity into divine glory. And that's really the event of the resurrection, is that his humanity enters into the fullness of divine glory. Not just his humanity, but our humanity. Too often and erroneously, the ascension is set up as just Jesus' exit. You know, he exits stage left and the Holy Spirit comes in stage right. You know, this is a false understanding. Um, So... It is really the lifting, the elevating of our humanity into glory, and of his humanity into the, the very life of the Trinity. And the Catechism will say this. Um, again, it, it makes this point in the next paragraph um, that there is, this indicates there's a difference in manifestation between the glory of the risen Christ and the Christ exalted to the Father's right hand. Left to its own natural powers, humanity does not have access to the Father's house. We tried to do that with the Tower of Babel, of course, you know. 
nor to God's life and to God's happiness. Only Christ can open to man such an access that we, his members, might have confidence that we too shall go where he, our head, and our source has preceded us. So the lifting up of Jesus on the cross, so there's a connection between the ascension and the cross, which we remember um, the cross is the summation, the summary of all of his um, incarnation, hidden years, and public ministry. Um, so it's also, we say, the um, summary of his um, paschal mystery as well. The ascension is somehow united to the cross. At the cross, he has lifted up and exalted. At the ascension, he is lifted up into heaven and exalted. Henceforth, we're told, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. By the Father's right hand, we understand the glory and honor of divinity, where he who exists as Son of God before all ages, indeed as God of one being with the Father, is seated bodily after he became incarnate and his flesh was glorified. So he is, again, um, his, his, his human nature, his body now shares in the very life of the Trinity. This is, um, I think, is a profound mystery because what we're saying then, that his body, his humanity, now shares in the very life of the Trinity, um, you know, it, that is a great mystery, I think, to reflect on. Um, it's one thing, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as three divine persons, but now the human nature of Christ and his body and his soul are now a part also of that divine, the divine life of the Trinity. Now, that's the promise that we're offered somehow mysteriously um, in our own um, redemption and salvation, to be as human beings kind of um, joining into that inner life. Um, so that, that's a great mystery to reflect on. Um, the final section that we'll cover quite briefly is that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Paragraph 668 through... Um, 679. Now, I will hit on this a little more fully when we cover the last things. And in fact, I might even re-reference some of these at that, in that section. But Christ is coming back again. This is a definitive part of our faith, that from thence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. In some sense, this is this end time, this final judgment, this final coming is already realized. We're already in the last days. The kingdom of God is already present here on earth in the church and in her mission. Present in mystery. We might say that in some sense it is realized since the ascension, God's plan has entered into fulfillment. We are already in the last hours, paragraph 670. But there is still an unrealized sense. 
Satan is still at war. The church is still journeying. We have the sacraments and the institutions here to sustain us. But those two will pass away, the catechism says in paragraph 671, um, when Christ returns in glory, these things will pass away. Um, But in some ways, then, Christ is present still here in the church, at work in the church. So the ascension is not this sort of absence now of Christ's presence, but that his presence is here. There is a sense of of it being realized, although not fully, completely realized. Christ will come in glory, but before that time, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel for a hardening has come upon their part. So both St. Peter and St. Paul are clear in their letters that um, there has to be some recognition by the, the people of Israel, not the modern state, but the people of Israel, um, all of Israel, a recognition of the salvation of the Messiah. The church also will undergo great trial There will be this Antichrist. The Catechism says that there is an Antichrist, a pseudo-Messianism. And then will be um, the final judgment. This final judgment, we might add, reveals everything. It reveals the secrets of each and one of our hearts, of every human being's heart, and all that they have done, all of their conduct. So in that sense, no sin is private. It will be revealed at the final judgment. We will know for sure culpable unbelief. So those that have died without believing will know whether or not they were sincere in their ignorance or not. You know, so we, we say that people who die without having heard the gospel um, or without having heard about the church or really believing in the church or hearing about Jesus, that there is a possibility they could be saved if they were authentically ignorant but we're going to know at the final judgment whether they were authentically. And then um, also what will be revealed is our attitude about our neighbors and our own refusal or acceptance of God's grace. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.